The first reading is not as shown on the screen. It is actually from the, the letter to the Philippians, at chapter 4, which you can find on page 1180 of your Pew Bibles. Philippians chapter 4, starting at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is taken from John, verses 19 to 31. This can be found on page 1089. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later his disciples were in the house again, And Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, 
Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. It's me. Is it a trick of the light? What are you afraid of? Perhaps it's church. Perhaps it's preaching. Perhaps it's spiders. Any spider haters here? No? Oh, yes, one over there. I definitely know one over there. Definitely. Perhaps it's fish. My daughter hates fish in the sea because they nibble her feet. She doesn't like that. For me, it's dogs. I'm sorry, those dog lovers amongst you. Having been attacked by an Alsatian at six, I'm always a little bit wary of dogs, a bit fearful of them. Perhaps it's a more sort of bigger thing than dogs, fish, spiders, or the dark. Some people are frightened of the dark. When I went to London a few weeks ago, I was met off the train by two armed police officers. Not just me personally, but you know, they were there for everybody. <laughs> but, uh, um, but they weren't just with guns. They actually had machine guns. I mean, really big machine guns. Because London was on high alert of terrorist attack, potentially. And there's this great sense of fear as you see these people walking the streets with great big machine guns in London. Perhaps it's the fear you have of going to the doctor to find out what this pain means. What are you fearful about? What brings anxiety to you? Because what we do today is we meet the disciples who are really quite fearful. They're in the upper room, and we know they're fearful because they've locked the door. And we lock our doors to keep people out. We lock them to protect ourselves, to make sure nobody comes in and harms us. We do not want to be harmed. And they're locked because they're afraid. They have seen Jesus killed on a cross. Who would not be afraid after seeing that? And they can't believe what they have seen. For Jesus was such a good man. He did such good things. He healed people. He changed people's lives like Zacchaeus. And he brought them into friendship and relationship with God and other people. How on earth 
could this have happened to him? And there are times when we experience the same kind of events in our lives, as Job did. We went through Job a few weeks ago. When we just can't believe how bad things can get, personally, nationally, or globally. And this, all it does is increases fear in us, and we become anxious, just as the disciples were anxious. Anxiety had been fueled for them by what had happened to Jesus that might now, could happen to them. But anxious, too, about how can we control life? How can we keep safe if this sort of thing happens? The disciples, you see, loved Jesus. They followed him. They gave their all for him. But now, this has happened to him. The world has overcome him. This man who they thought was the son of God. And this leads to true fear because it means Jesus was just like you and me, unable to control this chaotic world, the world that you and I live in as we get off trains in London as we turn our lights out and wonder if the spider's going to climb over our pillow. What this tells us is, in a sense, we sometimes fall in love with things we can't control. And most Stoics in Greek philosophy advise us not to give our hearts. Don't give your heart to something that you can't control. The only thing you can really control is your own virtue. Your virtue, your courage, your honesty, your integrity, these kinds of things you control. But it was St. Augustine who said, you simply can't do that. You cannot control your own virtue. Do you really think you can bring peace to your life by controlling your own virtue? It's not under your control. It's just as uncertain because we are all, and I think all of us, if we're honest, know that we are at times deeply flawed. Only love that, which, that cannot change can bring true tranquility, said Augustine. Only love that cannot change can bring true tranquility. I am quite changeable. It just takes a small thing to knock me off a little bit in my mood and think that, oh dear, I go into Eeyore mode. I mean, I'm going away next week on holiday. If it rains, poor Anne, pray for Anne. I love sunshine. So as I get up in the morning, I look out the window, and if it is raining, oh dear, suddenly Eeyore emerges from within, deep within me, and I feel completely let down by God, who's made it rain on my holiday. This is my one break. And I go through this whole catalog. I change. For the disciples... Everything you see about Jesus that they thought had changed. They'd seen what he'd done, as I'd said. They'd seen him do these amazing things, this man who had stilled the waters of this sea that gets really violent and really raging storm. The disciples were there with him in the boat when waves were washing over and they thought they were going to drown and they woke him up and said, don't you care about us? Don't you care, Jesus? We could die here and you're just laid out here asleep on a cushion. They were fearful, they were anxious, and Jesus stood up and he said, peace, be still. And there was a great calm. Peter declared Jesus to be the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. 
And as all of these thoughts are going on and how Jesus now has changed, becoming powerless and weak and vulnerable, as they saw him led out, nailed to a cross, they're in confusion. They're in doubt and they're in fear. And into that place, into that very place, Jesus comes. And he stands among them, as we saw there on the screen, raised from the dead. He doesn't come through the door, because it's locked, remember. He simply appears, and he's present to them. And he's present to Thomas, who really is so human, because he's full of doubts. He wants to put his fingers in the, in the nail prints in his side to see that it is Jesus. He's heard these stories, but is it true? Is it true? And Jesus comes, and the first thing he says to them is shalom, Jewish word, shalom, Hebrew, peace. And he says to Thomas, Thomas, put your fingers here. It's me. It's me. So what is this peace and this assurance that Jesus gives? Firstly, there are three things. We're nearly there. Firstly, peace in pain. We receive peace, as the disciples did, as we focus on Jesus That's who John brings into all the pain, into all the emptiness, into all the confusion, into all the sorrow, into all the despair. You've got to really imagine what it must have been like for the disciples. And Jesus comes in and meets the disciples where they are. And he will with you. Yesterday, a man came into the cafe. And my office is right in, you know, before the cafe. And he knocked on the door. Very odd. And he opened the door, and he came in, and he sat down, and he just poured out what he'd just been through over the last two months. A frightening experience to do with health. But he just sat there, and he listened. And I listened to him. And I listened to all his fear, all his pain. And then he just went. But the doors were open in this home of grace, saying, come in. Come in with your fears and your doubts. Sit down. Have a cappuccino and then talk. You have no idea who comes into our cafe and what they bring. And he left different as we prayed, and he left. Peace comes into the place of pain. And we all have pain and griefs to bear. And Paul wrote in Philippians that we heard, verse 6, don't be anxious. And immediately we're anxious. As soon as somebody says that to us, we're anxious, we're worried. And it's not Paul saying, he's not writing about normal care and concern we might have for something or someone. I mean, the parents of Grace and Freddie will have a concern and care for their children because they love them. And there's a right concern in that. And we can see that. And it's really vulnerable for a child to come into the world, isn't it? They're reliant upon you. My goodness. Frightening. Even at four in the morning sometimes. When perhaps we're not our best. No, Paul's not talking about that. The Greek word is referring to being torn into pieces. That's what anxious means. Torn into pieces by worry and fear. Pulling your hair out. Or it's, I'm beside myself with worry. These may be more common to us in the things that we hear. Don't be anxious. But Paul says the reason not to be anxious, the antidote to this worry, is the peace of God. That's what he's saying. And the first thing we discover about this peace is that there is an inner calm 
and an equilibrium. An inner calm comes and an equilibrium. He writes in verse 11, I've learned how to be content, peaceful in every situation. I've learned how the secret of how to be content. I'm the same in one situation as I am in the other. For Paul, inner calm, this inner peace that God gives him, leads to outer poise, outer poise in life. And here in Bath, we spend money in order to get that poise, in order to get that inner calm. We have the Thermos Spa here in Bath. It's going to be a five-star hotel with its own Thermos Spa. And we just drift into the waters and we let our troubles just float away. And you can see people doing it. They come in stressed and they come up to the top of that pool, I don't know if you've been there, and they're just going to go, oh. And you can see all their worries just floating away. Marvelous what God has given. We worry about our bodies and we spend money on them. We sometimes go swimming, we sometimes go to the gym, and these are good things to do. We spend our money on supplements and vitamins and all kinds of things. There are even little bottles you can get called calms. We can take calms to bring us inner calm. We don't need to come to church, we can go to boots. We can get a bottle of inner calm. It's amazing. And it's not that these things are bad. Because what we're simply trying to do is find that balance, find that poise in our lives to help us face the things that we do get anxious about, the things we do worry about, our job, our boss, whether we're going to be made redundant, our fear about the future. Will we be able to pay the bills that keep coming in? As the man in the cafe shared, his lack of health and the stress that we live with day in, day out. And we have to understand that Paul is not in some hippie kind of love state. He says these words in circumstances that are very, very difficult and real. Because Paul, as he writes these words, himself in Philippi in a jail, he's facing torture and imminent death. And he's in prison. And yet in this place of pain, he is still content. He is still receiving the peace of God. I've learned, I've learned the secret, he's saying, to be able to smile even at death. And because he's learned this, he's learned it, he's saying. It's not something that comes naturally. It's not because Paul was an apostle that he could really get the peace of God really well. It was a natural thing within him. No, he's had to really learn it. He's had to learn how to receive this peace that God wants to give us. And secondly, what he's discovered, it seems, in this peace, this peace that God gives, is it's through presence. Yes, there is peace possible in really painful situations, but it comes through the very presence of God as Jesus came into the room. And the second thing Paul tells us about this peace that God gives is that it's not about the absence of fear. Some people say, well, don't worry about that. Don't, you shouldn't think like that. Think, think more positively. <laughs> but it's not about taking the fear away. It is about bringing the presence, the presence of God. And what Paul says and what he has experienced is he said it's like a protection. It's like being protected and safe. He says in verse 7, and the peace of God which transcends, passes all understanding, will do this. It will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. It's a military word here. It's a military word that describes an army surrounding a city to protect it from invasion. When a whole army was guarding a city, 
you slept well if you were in the city. It's that great film, A Few Good Men, where, what's his name? Nicholas, no, I can't remember his name. But he's in, he's in the dock, and um, he says, you need me on that wall. You need me on that wall. We need defending, and we need that protection. And Christian peace is not about refusing to face how bad things really are. It's not about being unrealistic and going to a special place to find that peace. Jesus came into the room. He came to where the disciples were. He came into that place of fear. He didn't avoid it. He didn't send a message saying, hey guys, I'm at the Sea of Galilee. This is a really peaceful place. Why don't you come and meet me here? And we can just chill out by the Sea of Galilee. He didn't say that. He didn't send a message. He sent himself. And so he joins them in a locked room that's filled with fear. And the peace of Christ, the peace that Christ offers does not say to you, don't face the truth of things in your life. Christian peace brings into your life a presence that allows you to triumph over those facts. And they are facts. Sometimes life is difficult, as Scott Peck says. There are difficult things that you and I face. But his presence, his presence will bring a sense of being protected when we feel most vulnerable. And lots of experiences, peace of God. I've been amazed by it myself at times in different situations. And the situations I sometimes have to enter as a vicar are pretty devastating. When you have to go and tell somebody and be with somebody who has lost a child, for example, or it's, it's the most devastating news. And sometimes these things come right out the blue just as it did for the disciples. Someone close had been taken from them, sometimes violently, unexpectedly, and yet they still speak of an experience of peace coming to them, that because of what's happened, passes understanding. And some, I believe, is related to the power of prayer, and thank God the church prays. Thank God it prays. And sometimes in devastation, we need to pray, even if we can't be there, we have a prayer chain to be there prayerfully with people. That makes a huge difference. But also it is because the very presence of God is with people. It's real and it's tangible. And it's so easy to feel vulnerable when bad things happen. As the disciples did, the doors were locked for a reason. And sometimes we lock down our lives. We lock down our hearts because we are so fearful. And when I walk on the coastal path, I've seen huge waves, huge, big word there, huge waves, pounding the rocks. And I just stand and watch sometimes, thinking, gosh, that rock is going to be just nothing by the time that wave is finished with it. But when the wave goes away, behold, the rock is still there. The rock has remained secure in spite of this battering. And Paul, in writing this letter to the Philippians, he's like that. If you read his life, wave after wave, he's been beaten, he's been shipwrecked, he's had threats against his life, he's been betrayed, wave after wave. And he says, I have found a way to be completely poised under any circumstances. Wow. That is some peace to receive. When you've been battered like Paul, when he's writing this from prison, all the waves that have hit him, 
He has found the peace of God. And it's not been natural for him. He's had to learn it as he puts his trust in the presence of Christ. And that presence is going to guard his heart, guard his heart and his mind. And it keeps him secure no matter what. And finally, peace through pondering, peace in the place of pain, peace through the very presence of Christ who has come into the world and said, the world is going to be difficult, but do not fear, he says. I have overcome the world. And in the Bible, there are 365 times it says, do not be afraid. One for each day of the year. That's how much God wants to be telling us. Finally, peace through pondering. The miracle of birth is a time to ponder, isn't it? I found it with my kids. You just think it's amazing that actually life can be created. We're not going to go into how, you know, don't worry. But, but it's just amazing when this little creature is there before you, vulnerable and needing you. But it makes you think, what is life all about? What am I really here for? And Paul in verse 8 says, think about such things. He wants us to use our minds in searching for peace, not just an experience or a feeling. He wants us to think. He wants us to ponder eternal kinds of questions. It's really important to think. But Paul says, think on specific things. He says, think on what is true, what is noble, what is right. So when we think about the big questions in life, he's asking us to think about God. He's asking us to think about God in relation to these things. He's asking us to really think about what we believe, what our doctrine is, when these bigger questions are there about what is life? Why am I on this earth? What is the earth about? All these big questions. He wants to lead us always, Paul, to salvation, to the cross, to what is true about God as revealed in his Son. And lots of people today have no belief in God. They really do not believe in God. They don't want to look almost at the bigger picture and ask the bigger questions, but simply live according to their own instincts. So therefore, nobody can say what is right and what is wrong. What is best? It's down to you. You make that decision because there's no bigger story in which you are held. And what happens is we can create a turbulent place rooted in ourselves where motives can be deeply flawed and, if we're honest, at times can be deeply selfish. And Paul is saying Christian peace, Christian peace, which is what we hear in church, Christian peace comes through thinking, thinking through the implications of some of the bigger questions about what is true, about what is right, about what is noble. But thinking from the foundation that there is a God and that he made us and everyone to have friendship with God. And as we pray for Freddie and Grace, that they will discover the friendship that God wants with them. For God created a perfect world in which there was no sorrow, no disease or death. And he wanted to live in it with us. But it's gone wrong. And we have turned from him. And the world is broken as a result. But God doesn't give up. He sent his son as a tiny, vulnerable baby into the world to come and rescue us. And he's prepared a new heaven and a new earth forever. 
And so in this chaotic, mixed-up world of brokenness and pain and sorrow, as the disciples themselves were experiencing, as Christ himself, God himself experienced, we can know, and we can really know, that our future is secure. This is the bigger picture. This is the bigger story in which Grace and Freddie will grow up, that as Christians we believe we are created in love, we are redeemed through sacrifice, and one day we will experience fellowship with God forever that will feel like the best party ever. And the bigger story as we ponder it, a plan in which all shall be well, that God is in authority, He holds all things together. These truths that are right and noble, these will bring us peace. We know that God did not make the world to be filled with death and sorrow and suffering, and he has a plan to renew it. And he's a plan to get it back to how it's meant to be in Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for good for those who love him who have been called according to his purposes. This means that God is weaving everything together in your life for good. Even those difficult days, those hard things, it's working together for your good and for God's glory. That is the plan. And returning to the upper room where fear is transformed into peace, the plan that God has becomes real. It is not a story. Put your finger here, Thomas. Put your hand into my side. It's real. He is concrete and he is certain. Jesus is alive and has overcome death. And Jesus stands among them. And the first thing he says to them is peace. Peace. He didn't shout at them like I've just done probably because they were much nearer. Because they were in awe and wonder. Because they were sat there in fear and trembling of what was going to happen to them. Are you sat in fear and trembling of what's going to happen sometimes? And Jesus knows where you are. And he wants to say to you, whatever you are facing, because I am risen, yet still wounded, know my peace. Please know my peace. And on the day Jesus was crucified, on the day he died an agonizing death, All his friends looking on would have said, as I said, I can't believe this. And I've heard people say that at the hardest. I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe God could bring any good out of this. And maybe that's the discussion the disciples were having as they met behind locked doors. How can any good come from this? We've given our lives to this. What is God doing? What is he about? God is saving his world. That is what he's about. A world he loves and a world he wants to bring peace to. A deep peace that passes understandings, but the disciples cannot see it. And sometimes I can't see it either. Yet God is saying this. This person, Jesus, is the prime example of what I'm doing in everyone's life. Even when terrible things are happening, he showed them his hands and sighed. I'm working for your good. 
A song that's been on my lips all through Easter has been sovereign over us. And the chorus goes, your plans are still to prosper. You have not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood. Faithful forever, perfect in love. You are sovereign over us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is working together all things for good? If you do, you and I will know peace. Peace that passes understanding. We trust God. We trust and believe in the, in the plan. And we believe Jesus stood in that fear-filled room, wounded yet raised, and said, peace. And if you don't believe this, you won't have peace. And whose fault is that? Is it God's? God's done quite a lot, I think, to bring peace to you, to me. Finally, following the pain, the presence, and the pondering, we come to a place of peace. I love that moment in the DVD that we saw when they just see him and they're just quiet. I mean, it's quite a shocking thing if you imagine it. And Jesus makes a huge difference. In Isaiah 57, we read, the wicked are like the tossing sea, which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mud and mire. There is no peace. <clears throat> if you love anything more than God, if you live for anything more than God, your life is going to be like a tossing sea, restless, casting up mud and mire, because your house is like a house built on sand, not rock, always collapsing. And the natural consequences of turning away from God, not building your life on God, is restlessness. It is a deep restlessness. And we feel some of that restlessness at the moment as we move into a time of an election where we pray the right party is going to solve all our problems. The cross was a place, too, of deep restlessness for Jesus for he got all the consequences of what we'd done in turning away from God. He lost all his peace. And we hear that when he cries out, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? And we're told as he died, he died screaming in unfathomable pain. Jesus lost all his peace. Really? He lost all his peace so you and I could have eternal peace. So we look at him when life overwhelms us. We're going to sing a hymn in a moment shortly, when peace like a river. And it was written after two major traumas in a man called Spafford's life. The first was the great Chicago fire of 1871, which ruined him financially. He'd been a very wealthy businessman. We sometimes build up our lives on the security of our success and what we can do. Two years later, while crossing the Atlantic, all four of Spafford's daughters died when the ship collided with another ship. Spafford's wife, Anna, who was with the children, survived. For days, she was just in the water, waiting to be rescued. And when she got to England, she sent now the famous telegram with these words, two words, saved alone. 
And several weeks later, as Spafford's own ship passed near the spot where his daughters had died, the Holy Spirit inspired with the words of the hymn we're going to sing. How could he write these words? How could he know peace? When things go wrong, we are quick to say, maybe I'm being punished. No, Christ has taken all the punishment for you on the cross. You are not being punished. Christ was. Maybe God doesn't care. I can't look at the cross and say that God doesn't care for me. I simply cannot do that. You may be able to in your anger or your questioning of God. For me, that's where I go and see God does care. And the Bible gives us a God who says, I lost my child too. He freely gave his life. And as we sing this song, imagine a man looking out at the ocean where his daughters, all four of them, died. A man like you and me, yes, aware of the pain, yet also acutely aware of Christ's presence with him. A man who had pondered these things, and this brought him to peace, a peace that passes all understanding as he writes in these words, it is well with my soul. I pray that for Freddie and Grace. I pray that for all of us, that in our places of fear, whatever they may be, and in the times of pain, we may know the presence and peace of Christ through pondering all that he has done for us to bring us what? To bring us peace. For we are created in love. We are redeemed through sacrifice. And one day, we will see him face to face. And there will be such joy as well as peace. Let's stand and sing. It is well with my soul.